We are moving into the last week uh, of our community hermeneutic on gender and leadership. So Mitch had introduced that idea a little bit. So I wanted to just remind us um, of where we came from and, and where we're going. So we're, this Sunday we have, and then we have a week where we're going to continue to do conversations in the community groups. And then next Sunday we'll be uh, presenting what we've been discerning. And so uh, we started off uh, five weeks ago with an introduction to discernment. That discernment is the invitation of the church. And that we're invited to go through this process together in the way that we've laid it out. Um, and and it's, we're doing it as a community. And we're trying to figure out how we should practice and direct ourselves as a community at this moment in time. And discernment is different than a vote or a decision. Not, not that one is better than the other, but a vote, you know, for example, is that we all just raise our hands, like we'll, have, we'll do at the AGM, who votes for this, who doesn't vote for this. And um, a decision is also different in the sense that the, the leaders would just come and tell you this is the decision, this is the way that we're going as a church. And there might be times that we do that as well. But the discernment process that we're going through is, is slightly different in that uh, it's happening, as I said, I'm sharing information here. And then in our community groups, we're going through a process of, of discernment, of listening to each other. So like I said, we'll have this week where we'll really share in community groups which way do we feel like God is, is calling us. And then I'll meet with the leaders, and we'll discern together. And then next Sunday, we'll report on what we experienced and which way we think God is directing us. Now, you might wonder, what happens if there's not like a clear discernment, a clear path forward? Then that's what we'll announce next week, too. And so part of the process of, of being in discernment that's different than making a decision is that we are trying to allow this to be on God's timeline. So we've set out a timeline of six weeks that we're doing this for, and we got some wise counsel in how long to do it. People were like, don't drag this on forever. People can only be in this conversation for so long. Some of you might be like, yeah, it's too long. Um, but So we, we set six weeks, but ultimately it's God's timing. So if there isn't clear discernment in our community, that's fine. That's what we'll announce next week, and, and we'll talk about what we do moving forward. So we want to have this process be shaped around the, the person of God, and that's one of the ways that we let him to be in control is through the timing. So in the process of discernment, we've done two different things. The first is that we've looked at our stories. So we have these kind of three different parts. And so we looked at our stories. And, and I just want to say I'm so grateful uh, for the people that I know who have been sharing their stories in our community group and just talking to me. And, and I think as I talk to other community group leaders, um, it's amazing to hear that uh, how honest and vulnerable people are being. And I, I really appreciate that. And then the last two weeks, we went through the, the various scriptures. So I presented what the biblical case is for complementarianism first, for male-only leadership and male headship in the church. And then last week, we talked about how people biblically get to the place of egalitarianism, which is both males and females in leadership today uh, together. So today, we're going to move on to the last uh, part, which is the spirit. And there's so much to be said about who the Spirit is and, and what he does, but I just want to focus today on one element. And Jesus says this in, in John 16. He says, The Spirit will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will glorify me because he'll take from what is mine and declare it to you. And so the way that we've depicted this in our series graphic is that the Spirit helps us to keep Jesus at the center. That's really what he one of the jobs that he's doing is to try to keep him glorified. Another way of saying it is like this. Every day, when, when we open our phones, when we interact with our world, it's telling us stories about who we are, about why we're here, what the point of life is, and, and what the good life looks like. And in our world today, I think that, that often means putting ourselves into the center. 
That's the encouragement. Put yourself in the center, your wants, your desires, your needs. And so the Spirit is here to, re- to recalibrate us at that story level to the true story of the cosmos, which is that you're very important. God loves and cares for you, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But that your story isn't at the center. I often think of it like this. It's almost like um, being at the bottom of the ocean. It, you know, there's immense pressure in the, in the ocean if you're at the bottom, so I've heard. And our bodies are just not uh, capable of taking that kind of pressure. It's not that our bodies are, are wrong or, or anything like that, but that's the kind of pressure that we, we put on ourselves when we put our stories at the center. They just don't belong there. Jesus is the only one who can come and put his story there. And it's, it's when his story is there that we experience shalom. That's what the Bible is trying to say. So today I want to try to do that and, and focus on three areas where we just need to check that story level, that, that motivation level, as we move into this last week of, of discernment. So I want to talk about three things. Identity, family, and mission. Very baseline things in the church. Identity, family, and mission. So let's get started with identity first. This one will be short. So I'm going to I try to share these in, in statements. So the first one is that we share a humanity. Now, much of the focus on this conversation, because we're talking about gender and leadership, obviously is about maybe the differences between gender that we have. But in the Bible, the larger umbrella term is actually that our idea is that we're all humans. This is much bigger and more important than the differences that we have as male or female, or you might say, I, you know, I don't know about my gender right now. That's fine. The point is to say that, that we as humans, that umbrella is much bigger that's what we share together. And in Genesis 1, it talks about the importance and the value that we have as humans because we're made in the image of God. Genesis 2 talks about how Eve is made out of Adam. And regardless of what you think that means for gender and leadership, it also talks about the amazing closeness that these two people have together, that we have as human beings, being, being connected and interconnected. So we share a humanity, and that actually gives us the greatest value. No matter where we land on this issue uh, about gender and leadership, no matter where you personally land, you're you're valued because you're a human. The Bible says you have a potential to reflect the God, the infinite God of the universe, his glory into the world. You're an icon or an image or an idol or a statue of this God. So you are valued. And that's true if you follow Jesus or you don't. But one of the clearest places that God says, uh, speaks about our value or shows us our value is when he actually comes himself. When, here's the story that the Bible sets up. We, as these people who have the potential for imaging God, it's like you could think of it like we're stuck in mud, or the Bible might say something like we've been kidnapped and we can't actually reflect God in the ways that we were made to do. And so God, in his love, he comes himself to do two things, to save and to serve. And so he shows us what it means to be truly human by coming and serving that that's the heart of what it means to be human and reflecting God. But he also comes to save. One of the passages says that he, he gives his life as a ransom for us, to free us. And so th- that speaks to the value that we have. How much are you worth? How much is every person in here worth? You're worth the life of God. That God would give his life for you. And so the question, I think, for us is, is your identity and the way that you look at everybody else in this process rooted in that story, or is it rooted in some other story? And here's why this is important. This is just boilerplate Christianity, by the way. But it's so important because if you don't root yourself in this story, if I don't root myself in this story, then I'll come to this discernment process, and actually everywhere that I go, I'll be just looking for that. I'll be going and and looking to be valued, looking to be okay, 
looking for people to say that over me and looking for other people that I can pit myself against and say, I know I'm okay because I'm not like them. And so it's so important, even though it's, uh, just like I said, boilerplate Christianity stuff, that this is the ultimate story that we're living out of, this unshakable identity that Jesus gives us, that we are children of God, that we are loved by God, that we are images of God. And so I, I just want you to, this week, take some time to think about that. Is that where I'm, where I'm starting this process from? Is this place? Because if you don't, you'll be subtly putting your story into the center and taking Jesus out of the center. And so that's the first thing I want to remind us. Your identity as a person is not on the line for this decision that we're making together. You're valuable as a person made in the image of God, as someone who Jesus would give his life for. That's the ultimate truth about you. So that's the first one. Now the second one is going to take a little bit more time. We're going to talk about, so first our, our personal identity, and now our corporate identity. So, again, we'll go from statements here. In Christ, this means if you've put Jesus at the center, if you've, you've taken this story on to be your true story, in Christ we're invited and empowered to become new humans in a new family. New humans in a new family. So the good news of Jesus isn't simply that you get to go free. Like you were in trouble, and then you get to go free. That's partially true, but it's that you actually get to, like think of it this way, you were kidnapped, you were brought out from, with ransom, and now you're able to return to your family. That's the bigger picture. And so we should be asking, what is this family like that we get to return to? What, is the, what characterizes this family? So in the family of God, the focus is on being one. One of the passages that says this most clearly is Galatians 3.28. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is one of the most important and shocking passages in the Bible at the time because people would be like, what, Jews and Greeks? These people don't get along. Slaves? Slaves aren't as valuable as free people. Women? Women and men? Come on. And, and Paul says, yes, as we talked about last week, the resurrection has changed everything. And so bringing us into this family, there's a oneness there that exists before. These distinctions that categorize you outside the family of God don't now categorize you inside the family of God. Everyone is included. Everyone is one. And that was shocking then, and it should actually still be shocking for us today. But we generally miss out because we're so busy looking back at this time and being like, man, those people, they're such racists, they're such classists, and they're such sexists, that we actually don't see how we, also in our moment in history, aren't able to take what this verse has for us. So what do I mean by that? Well, in her really, really great book, which we still have one copy of in the back, Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian, Michelle Lee Barnswell argues that when we read this passage... Galatians 3.28, what we hear in the word one is something like this. In Christ, everyone is equal and has the same rights. That's what we hear when we hear the word one. Therefore, what we think is, oh, well, women are equal, and it's their right to be able to lead. So they should. They should be able to lead. And that word should is really, really important for where we're going this morning. And that idea is shaped by our cultural moment, that we live in an individualistic society, which means that we put ourselves before the community, and we live in a liberal society. So the the goal of our society that we live in, a good community, should try to remove everything out of the way so that I can do what I want to do. We shouldn't stop anyone. And that has created some mediocre music, like Katy Perry, basically every single one of her songs, if you want to know, that's like the vision of every one of her songs, like, I'm a lion, I'm going to roar, whether you like it or not. Um, but it's also created some really important m- moments or movements in our time. For example, like 
the black rights movements. These are really important and good. And I'm not saying that they aren't. But when it comes to this conversation, we, we have to ask a different kind of question, which is, are equality and rights the best criteria or the highest criteria, the primary values in the family of God? They are in our society. Are they for the family of God? And listen to what Michelle Lee Barneswell says. The passage, Galatians 3, does not speak of equality as much as unity, of being one. Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, are not isos equal, but heis, one. It is vital to see the larger theological purpose of the unity of the community because Paul's overriding concern, his highest concern, is not the rights of an individual, but the glory of God as seen through the church. Paul does not deny the importance of rights, but asserts that there's a more transcendent way. There's actually a a higher calling in the family of God. That's what I think she's saying. Equality is great, and it could be a characteristic of a New Testament church, but when the New Testament describes the family of God, the primary motivator is actually not equality or rights. It's rather, it's one, being one, or loving one another, or unity, or being integrated into the same family. Now, what's the difference between this? You're like, wow, this is like very nuanced. What is actually the difference? Here's what it is in a statement. Here's what she says. Equality speaks to one's personal privileges and rights, whereas love describes one's willingness to prioritize other people. It's a very different difference at the motivation level, at the story level. One is focused on me and my rights, the other one is focused on something else and someone else, Jesus and his, fa- excuse me, his family. Now, I know for some of you this might sound crazy because, again, in our society, we just take these things as bo- like they're just baseline motivations. So let me just give you some other examples from the Bible where people say something very similar. In 1 Corinthians 9, so we looked at some passages from 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is what Paul says. He says, don't I have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? So he's speaking to the Corinthian church here, and he's saying, don't I have the right to get some food for the work that I'm doing among you? Can't, couldn't I take a, a, like, don't I have the right for a wife? Don't I have the right to get paid? And then listen to what he says. Nevertheless, we have not made use of these rights. Instead, we endure everything for this higher value so that we do not hinder the gospel of Christ. My rights, he says, are important All those things, relationship, food, money, very important. We would call them basic human rights. But he says in the family of God, there's actually a higher calling, not hindering the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 8, which is the passage just before, uh, Paul is talking to some people in the community. So there's uh, there's a lot of food issues back back then. Um, And one of them in, in the Corinthian city was that there are some people who are eating meat sacrificed to idols. Some, some people in the family of God. And other people were saying, no, 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 you can't eat this meat. If you eat it, basically it's like you're taking part in idol worship. The same thing is happening in Romans. Uh, that there are some people who are eating meat, eating whatever they want, and then there are other people who are only vegetarians. And Paul says this about them. He says, you can actually, you have the right to eat whatever you want. He says, 1 Corinthians 8.8 8 says, food will not bring us close to God. This is a great tattoo if any of you guys are looking to get a passage tattooed on you. Food will not bring us close to God. But listen to what he does say to all of these people. Decide never to put... So you, Sorry, you have a right to eat whatever you want. That's your right. 
You can do it. But here's the higher value. Decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Let us pursue what promotes peace, what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food, because of your rights. Everything is clean, but it's wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. When we are in in an issue like that where we have people on two sides of an issue, of course we're thinking we're the strong one and the other group is the weak, especially if they're not eating meat, then of course if they're vegetarians they're going to be weaker. Um, But the point is is to say the idea here is that's what you're going to think. Oh, they're the weaker one. I'm the stronger one. And he says, you know what you should do as a stronger one then is you should give yourself for the weaker one. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. That is not the highest vision for what Christ came for. So he's saying rather than asserting your rights, which you could do, you could do, the bigger consideration is about the family of God. What will help other people? What will help build up the family? What will keep us united? And ultimately, this is the way of Jesus. We looked at Philippians 2 a couple weeks ago. This is what it says. Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. Adopt the same attitude as Christ, who, existing in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God, so he's equal with God. He didn't consider it something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, so that's a value. He could have done that. Say, I'm equal to God. These are my rights. Instead, what does he do? This passage just talks about how he systematically lowers himself. He becomes a human. Not only a human, but a servant. Not only a servant, but he dies. Not only does he die, but he dies on the cross. That's the higher vision and the values. And so to me, these passages point out that the focus on equality and individual rights is great and it's good. And I'm not against any of those, those movements that have happened, although I really don't like Katy Perry and her music, to be honest with you. But the, the, the issue here is it's the wrong emphasis. It's not the highest vision for the family of God. And why? It's because it won't actually bring what God is most concerned about, which is oneness and unity in his family. Because if I focus on equality, what I'll end up doing is comparing myself with other people. And I'll say, you know, do I have the equal opportunity as this person to do this thing? Or why do I have to sacrifice more than so-and-so? And that will be the kind of question that I'm asking, rather than what we see in these passages. It's like, how can I lower myself to serve and love and make us one? That's the emphasis in the family of God. Listen to what Barneswell said. In all of these examples, people are called to give up their privileges for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church. The willingness to sacrifice for the good of another is the essence of love in the New Testament. Giving up one's legitimate rights to prevent another believer from stumbling is a way in which love builds up higher values. So in the family of God, the focus is on love or unity or inclusion or being one over and above being equal and asserting our rights. Now, you might wonder, why is this so important? Why are you going on and on about this? Well, I think I've realized I think a lot, although I'm not a very artistic person, I think a lot in pictures and diagrams. So let me, let me see if this helps. So let's imagine that this arrow here is, is God's will. So that's what we were invited to when we read uh, Romans 12, to discern what God's perfect and good will is. And so in this case, we realize, hopefully, from looking at the scriptures, that it's not just written in stone tablets somewhere. 
what we're supposed to do. There are some issues, I think, in the Bible that are pretty cut and dry. This is not one of them. So we have to go through some discernment. And many of us are progressive Vancouverites. We live here. And so the idea of equality and rights, these are just, like I said, they're just like the water we swim in. They're, of course, language to us. And so by the grace of God, what we see is like that we somehow intersect with God's story. The values that we carry as people intersect with the story of God. That there is this thing called being an egalitarian church where both men and women lead. They're equal, and uh, we, we can have both leading together. And in that moment of intersection, so I, there's nothing wrong with being a progressive Vancouverite type of person, but I think what, what it means to follow Jesus and, and be at the center is at, at this moment of intersection, there's an invitation for you, if that's who you are, that your motivation for being egalitarian actually switches and changes. That you can be egalitarian and have your primary motivations be your progressive values, or you can be egalitarian in a Christ-centered way. That you actually join in, and you change maybe not what you believe, but you change the reasons you believe what you believe. Because if the church is the representation of God, our God who is one, then there is a beautiful motivation, rather than just equality or rights. There's a deeper motivation, which is that our God is three in one. And what would, make, what would be a more beautiful picture representing him than male and female, difference but united, working together at the highest and the lowest level of our church? See, the difference in motivation is actually important because who it's focusing on. One is about let's represent Christ and God in the best way that we possibly can, and the other is just like let me baptize the values that I already bring to the conversation. Same outcome, very different motivation. At the point of any intersection that we have here, there's always this motiva- or invitation to us to deepen. And this is what we're talking about when we read in, in uh, Romans 12, this, this invitation to transformation, this path of dying and rising, and the path of being one. And so what happens is if you, if you receive that invitation of God, which is not necessarily to change that you're egalitarian, but to change your motivation then you can learn to come to your complimentary, or complimentarian brother or sister and say, you know, I don't agree with you. Maybe I think you're the weaker brother or sister, but it's not about me asserting my rights over you. It's about a bigger question, which is how can I die and rise? How can we be one? How can we love? How can we be united together? And here's why I also think this is so important, because you can choose to reject this invitation. You can choose to accept the invitation of God, which is to say, I'm going to actually choose the path of dying and rising. I'm still an egalitarian, but I'm going to choose the path of dying and rising. Or you can choose to reject it. And here's what happens, is that your line will just carry on straight through. And that's what a progressive or a liberal church is. It's just they're more concerned with their, their narrative of progress or Western liberalism than actually the story of God. And at some point, I'll tell you what will happen in this place, is that this church will not be liberal enough for you. And I will not be a progressive enough pastor for you. And there will be people here who are too fundamentalist for you. And so what you'll do is you'll go and try to find that place. That's why it's so important. And if you do that, then what happens is we are not able to be one together. We miss out on the invitation of God to be one together. And you'll miss out on the opportunity to learn to become like Jesus and actually be focused on those higher values that he's in. So I want to be really clear It's great if you're a more progressive person. We need you here, actually. I invite you here. 
but it's about checking our narratives and our motivations that we're bringing to the table. So let's switch and now talk to more conservative people for a minute. So leadership exists within the family of God. But one of the leadership theories that has shaped us most uh, as Western liberal people is this idea of the great man theory of leadership. And the idea here is basically that leaders are born, they're not made. They rise to the challenges ahead of them, so they come at these really important moments. And it's called the great man theory of leadership and not the great woman theory of leadership for a reason. Because when they made it, it's like obviously that person is going to be a man. Now, there's a parallel in Christian faith and theory that we believe we have a great leader who is also a male. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm not talking about me, but thank you. Uh, I'm talking about Jesus here. Um, but we have another situation where we see this, where, where our conservative values, this great man theory of leadership, and, and our conversation about gender and leadership, they, they can combine. That the Bible does seem to say in certain ways that what we need is, is strong men, to, or we need men to lead. And so we can, we can incorporate our already pre-existing beliefs into this idea that what we need is strong men at the helm of leadership. It's very much a one-up, one-down relationship. Focus on the leaders. The leaders lead and the followers follow. And they have to make decisions. That's the key thing that leaders have to do is make the right decisions. And so what we populate elders boards with is people who have been good at making decisions. Maybe they're high up in organizations or they've run a really successful business or they've made a lot of money or they've got advanced degrees in theology. And everybody else, they're, they're, what they need to do is submit to these leaders to be compliant. And um, the, the great man theory of leadership has gained a lot of momentum, I think, as well, because the, the last piece of it would be that we need to do this, especially in times like these. What we see is that back in the day, there was these great leaders who led the church, and now what we see is the church taking a nosedive. We lose about 1% of Christians in Canada every year. And so we see this trend happening, and we think if we could just reverse this trend with great leaders then we would get back to this place where the church is doing really well. And so for me, I think God wants us to do the same thing. So I, I say this, you can be a complementarian. I preached on it for 40 minutes two weeks ago. But I think the same invitation comes for us to challenge our motivations and our reasons. How so? Well, listen to what Jesus says about leadership. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our leadership is supposed to look like Jesus, not the great man theory of leadership. In fact, I think he basically criticizes that idea at the very beginning. He says, that's not how my kingdom works. Instead, his kingdom is characterized by something very different. We talked about this briefly last week, which is this idea of reversal. In Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, humans are created last. And if you know anything about that, uh, that moment in time, it's the firstborn, the first thing created that always has all the leadership. But the humans are created last, and God says, oh, actually, I'm, put, though I'm putting you in leadership. And this story carries on throughout the Bible. Often it's the secondborn, or sometimes the lastborn, who is the one who gets into leadership? And this is followed up by Jesus, who says the first will be last. The servant will be the leader. Listen to what Lee Barnswell says about this. The irony is that this reversal of traditional expectations leads to unity. There it is again. Higher value. 
Rather than stability obtained by each part living according to its worldly status, unity is achieved by the self-sacrificial behavior of the entire body and especially the high-status members, those who are leaders. This then leads to a critical component of leadership for Paul. As the apostle follows the model of Christ, their lowering lowering self-sacrifice, suffering, and other-oriented concern and behavior set the example for others for the unity of the community. Their example is particularly powerful because as leaders, they would, be, they would be least expected to do so, just as the nature of Jesus' humility was shocking because of his ultimate status as God. The New Testament statement about authority and leadership in the church, whether male or female, show that, the servanthood, that servanthood is a fundamental concept that goes deeper than just an attitude. It's not just an add-on to what it means to be a leader. As a result, complementarians, as well as egalitarians and anyone who applies servant leadership to the community, need to ask whether their definitions of leadership view suffering, humility, weakness, and a lowering of status as integral to a kingdom understanding of leadership. When servant only modifies an understanding of leadership and authority, it cannot challenge or change the nature of either in the way that the New Testament seems to do it. Same idea. There are these higher values, and God is calling us to this change, to take on these higher values, which look completely opposite of what we often think about when we think about leadership. So again, let's go back to our our diagram here. Some of us here are more conservative by nature. That's fine. That's great. You're welcome here. We need you in this community. And this conservativeness often leads to people in the more complementarian position. And so you can be a complementarian. I preached on it once again. But I think when you intersect the life of Jesus, there's always an invitation. And I think I would put it this way, in the logic of Jesus, when it comes to this conversation, the invitation for you if you're complementarian is this. Rather than thinking we need men in leadership to get us back to this time, I would, I would encourage you to think this way or challenge you to think this way. I'm a complementarian because I think men should be the first ones to serve. I want to be the first one who's humbled in this community the first one to show that I follow Jesus by becoming a slave. I want to go first in dying, dying and rising. Because I think if I do, I think if men do that first, then this will actually become a community that's one, where people can learn to love Jesus and see Jesus, that people might see that and follow him. And I know we haven't touched on this, but I know there are people who have more of that complementarian vision for their marriage. That's how they view their marriage. And it's not about lording over their wives. It's not about being the smartest person in their home. It's not about protecting their family. It's about service. It's about loving service, about being the first one to die in their family. And I think that that is a beautiful representation and creates a group of people who can love and follow Jesus and represent the service of God. So again, I'll say this. You can, you can reject this invitation. That's the other option to you. And you'll say, okay, like, I'm a, I'm a complementarian. Um, but what will happen is, is that then, uh, or this is basically what uh, um, conservative or fundamentalist churches do, is that they're more concerned with their narrative of keeping up the past and the threat of liberals. And at some point, this church, and maybe that point is right now for you, will not be conservative enough for you. Or you'll look at me and you'll be like, oh, I don't know where he lands on these issues. He's not conservative enough of a pastor for me. Or there's too many woke people here for me. I need to go back to a place where people agree with me. And, and once again, what will happen? We won't be able to be one. We'll lose you, and we need you here. 
we won't be able to be one and be together. So this question, I've spent a long time on it, but I think it's really important as I thought about this issue and thought about our community. The discernment that we're making is so important, but why are we making that choice? Why are you making that choice? Are you, are you receiving the invitation of God to actually change your motivations and become like him? So the first is, is our identity. The second is our community. And last and quickly, I'm just going to follow up with this one. It's, it's our mission. The family of God exists as one in a certain context and time as a witness to the watching world. This is the third thing we need to add as we discern this week. Our discernment on this issue should reflect the moment and the place that we live in, our mission field. And this is what Paul does. All of these passages up on on the screen are from the pastoral epistles where Paul says, you should act this way. Why? So that people might actually see Jesus. And of note, I'll make of the Titus 2.5 reference. He specifically says here that women should submit to their husbands or wives submit to their husbands. And the reason, the reason for it is so that God's word would not be slandered. Something's going on in that community. And the higher vision is that God would be known. This is what Cynthia Westfall says in her wonderful book, Paul and Gender. In order for Paul's Gentile mission to succeed, the behavior of Christian women would need to be consistent with what was practiced by women in the broader first century Greco-Roman world. Therefore, Paul's gender concerns were often missional when he addressed gender roles in the church and the home, and his intention was for believers to fit into the culture while remaining ethically pure. They wouldn't put up barriers to people considering the gospel and at the same time showing that they were a different group of people. And other theologians have said the same thing. Let me just give you two examples. First, John Stackhouse says this, for the Christian individual in the Christian church, the question of gender is not just about gender. It may not even be primarily about gender. It is about the kingdom of God because everything is first and finally about the kingdom of God. And because everything is about the kingdom of God, then questions about gender need to be asked in this one primary context. What will best advance the kingdom of God here and now. The MB Conference, which we're a part of, released this statement. In the spirit of unity, the Board of Faith and Life requests that we all discern on this issue with a raised awareness of the significance our decision has upon our collective witness to our communities and our country. It is a unified church that advances the gospel. The intent of the resolution to allow women to serve in all areas of ministry was to move the mission of the church forward and to remove potential impediments to that mission. And the adoption or retention of a restrictive view, which says that women can't lead in certain areas of the church, ought to be located within the mission of the church governed by the centrality of Christ. What they're saying is, if if that's what you're going to consider, then consider it within the mission of the church. For example, a Middle Eastern scholar that I read, he said, it would just be very unwise for you to send an all-female church planting team to a closed country in the Middle East. It's just unwise to do. It doesn't help the mission of your church. You have the right. It's not wisest because the higher value is the mission. What does a mission? And discernment means taking our context seriously. What will best serve to advance the gospel here and now? What will not put up unnecessary barriers for people in our city, your friends, your family, your coworkers, to consider Jesus? What will help us make disciples here and now? And some of you might say, well, John, you're just showing your cards here of what we should do. Because we obviously live in exactly the opposite of like a closed Muslim country. And I'd say, yeah, so let's take it into consideration. our missional environment, the place where God has put us, where we live and where we do ministry. 
And you might say then, well, if I do, then that would obviously push me to become an egalitarian. Let me just say three things in closing on that. First is this, no. That's not what I'm necessarily saying. I'm not trying to say that that's what we need to do. But the second, and the second is this, that this is only one of the things we need to add to the discernment that we're going to do. But here's the third and the most close to my heart. There are people in this city, friends, family members, neighbors, that I I love very dearly. And I tell you, I would give anything for them to know Jesus. And if God came to me today and he said, look, I will appear to your sister if you just donate all of your RRSPs to UGM. Will you do it? And I'd be like, joke's on you, God. I don't have very much of my RRSPs anyways. It doesn't really matter. I would give it up today because I just want them to know Jesus. And I know from talking with you that that is your, many of your hearts too. You have kids, you have parents, you have friends, you have family members who you just want to know Jesus so, so badly. And we pray with you and we pray for, for you. And I'll just say this in closing. If keeping men only in leadership is the best way for us to witness to them, then let's do it. But if it's not, then let's change tomorrow. Because it's not about us. It's about our mission field. What will open up doors for this good news of Jesus to go out and people maybe, just maybe, to see in this place the glory and the light of Christ shine out? Let's pray in close. Father, we thank you for this invitation uh, that regardless of where our stories are coming from and whether I've described them accurately today, there's always this invitation for us to follow you. And sometimes that will mean changing the position that we have, the thing that we came in believing, but sometimes it's just an invitation to change our motivation. So we pray that this church would be all of these things that uh, we talked about today, that we would be unified, that we would be one, that we would be a group of people who are not just hell-bent on putting our rights ahead, um, but actually to... A desire, a desire that we have, the highest desire would be people that look like you, that we love one another, that we're a group of people who are unified around Jesus. So as we go through this last week of discernment, and even now as we, as we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we take communion together, would you unite us to be one? Would you lead us uh, and direct us by your spirit, that we would be groups of people who are identified with your story, that our identity would be deeply rooted there, that we would be a group of people who understand what it means to be your family. And that also we would be a group of people that are on mission for you and a reflection of you in this place and in this time. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.